Amen. If you were to remain standing in honor of God's word, Romans chapter 8, verse number 32, and then over in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, 2 Timothy chapter number 3, Romans 8 says this, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? By the way, it has nothing to do with my message, but anytime you doubt the care of God, anytime you, you doubt that God wants to bless you, you doubt that God wants to intervene in your life, just look at the cross. If God gave us his son to redeem us, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? In other words, God started out with the best. Anything else that God does for us is just below that, right? He gave us his very best in giving us his son. Second Timothy chapter three doesn't seem like it relates to Romans eight, but it does. Second Timothy chapter three, verse number one says, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that what this means is as we, as we go into the last port of call in society, as we arrive at our final destination, as we get on the doorstep of the return of Christ, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. If you weren't here last week, get that, um, download that message, listen to it. Unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people turn away. Today we are continuing in our series, Following Jesus in Today's World, and I want to talk to you from something that I made a joke about just a minute ago, the participation trophy generation. The participation trophy generation. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace and your power to every single heart? Would you make your word real and alive to them? We pray that they would come closer to Jesus or know him for the first time as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, you may be seated. There's a famous joke by a comedian, you may have heard of him, Jeff Foxworthy, anybody know who he is? One of the rare comedians who doesn't curse a lot, or I don't even think he curses at all, but maybe, I don't watch him that much. But there's a famous joke, and he talks about his experience growing up versus kids today, and he said, I played every sport when I was growing up, and it was weird back then. If you wanted a trophy, you had to finish in first place. (laughs) It's funny. I don't care what y'all say. And then recently, I came across a Simpsons cartoon meme, and, you know, there was Marge the mother, and she had her hands on her hips, and Homer the daddy was giving Bart the old dad, you know, glaze that, of disappointment, and and uh, their teenage boy, Bart, you know, he was sitting there with his arms closed with, a you know, one of these rolling eyes type of look on his face, and, and the meme has Marge saying, your behavior at the game was unacceptable. You're lucky they gave you a participation trophy, and their sister, Lisa, and she's pointing to her her trophy that says non-participant. And she said, well, I just got one for watching the game. The participation trophy generation. Everyone, no matter what they've done or how hard they've worked or didn't work or how they may have acted, gets a trophy. Now, let me say this. Participation trophies can function 
effectively during brief periods of time where the stakes are low and socializing takes precedence over production and achievement, but that window in the maturity of a person is very, very small. In kids, perhaps, we can all see the value of acknowledgement under certain circumstances, but accolades that do not accompany earned rewards or support good behavior wind up producing adults and a generation who have an entitlement mentality. And such is the case in our culture now where both young and old feel as though simple things like showing up for work on time and not leaving early, having an honoring attitude toward their boss, expecting their employer or employer to dictate their work schedule and working hard to earn what they have are antiquated and outdated values and having government or the government provide free checks in the mail seems to be what everybody expects. Instead of the important value of helping people who need it, we have entered an age of handouts. Instead of working hard um, to have what we've earned, we are now taught to work the system. Instead of earned reward, we have now entered into an age where everyone gets rewarded. Where did this sense of entitlement and come from and what is the wisdom given to us in the Bible? Well, enter our text which gives us a description of the characteristics of the culture of the end of the age, the topsy-turvy, upside-down, right is wrong and wrong is right culture in which we live. Right smack in the middle of this long list of characteristics of the end-time culture, we find these two words lumped together, unthankful and unholy. And we have to begin with, with finding out what does the word unthankful really mean? Well, first of all, as you might have guessed, it comes from the word thankful. And the word thankful is derived from the Greek word grace or charis. And it means to be grateful or appreciative for various reasons. To elaborate, it is an inward awareness of having been fortunate or well-treated. It encompasses a person's attitude toward his or her good fortune, their warm feelings toward the person who is responsible for that good fortune, and the expression of appreciation. It is an attitude of gratitude that Jesus himself expects that we possess. Some of you might remember the story in the Bible of the ten lepers. Lepers were ostracized in Bible times, and they they could not live in their own communities unless the priest declared them to be clean or fit. Old Testament law said that a person who had leprosy or an infectious disease like this must wear torn clothes Let his hair or her hair be kept unkept, cover the lower parts of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. Sounds like people during quarantine with COVID, doesn't it? And as long as the infection remained, they remained or were thought to be unclean. They had to live alone and outside of their communities in a leper camp. But one day when Jesus was on the border between Galilee and Samaria, instead of hearing the cry, unclean, unclean, he hears a cry from the leper colony, from 10 specifically, Lord, have mercy on us. And Jesus' heart was moved with compassion when he heard that cry. He heard not just their physical pain, but he heard the emotional pain. The pain of being ostracized, the pain of not seeing their family, the pain and the shame that goes along with having leprosy. And his heart was moved with compassion. And so he calls out to them and he says, go show yourself to the local priest. And the Bible says that as they were going, they were all healed of their disease. Could you imagine how this went? They're going to the high priest, you know, at the command of Jesus. And as they're going, all of a sudden one looks at the other and he goes, your nose, 
Your nose? Well, well, what do you mean my nose? Your nose doesn't look too good either. No, no, no. You, you got a nose. And could you imagine as they're, as they're walking and they begin to look at their hands and they got fingers again and they begin to unroll all of the bandages that are on them and they begin to see that their body is completely restored. They jump in the air in exuberation and they land on their feet, which, which was full formed again. They're so excited about it and they get so pumped up. They're laughing with joy. They're excited. Nine run home to their families. One turns around and runs back to Jesus. And when he gets to Jesus, he pours out his heart. He says, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he begins to kiss the perfect feet of Jesus who gave him this new life. And in Luke chapter 17, verse number 17, here's what Jesus says. He says, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the other nine? Ten were rescued, cleansed, given a brand new beginning, yet nine ran the wrong way. One out of ten were thankful. One out of ten realizes that their good fortune came from a good God who healed them by his grace. Nine were unthankful. Imagine having the opportunity to exit interview the nine that didn't say thank you. You know, uh, tell me, you know, why didn't you say thankful? Well, of course I'm grateful, but, you know, I didn't know that he expected me to go back and express thank. I mean, thanks. I mean, he does do this stuff for a living, doesn't he? Well, I, I, I got better, and I really think it was coincidence because while I was in the leper colony, I was taking these herbs, and, you know, I think these herbs finally just kind of paid off, and, and that's why I'm healed or uh, a little bit afraid of going back, you know. I hear this Jesus guy can be very demanding. He required one person to give up everything that he had and to come and follow him. Or maybe if they were from this participation trophy generation, well, I'm glad I'm healed, but but to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not sure it's to my advantage. Before, all I had to do was sit around and beg, but now I got to go get a job. I, I'm glad I was cured of leprosy, but 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 I'm not really pleased with the way I look. You know, the leprosy aged me like you know ten years. Couldn't he have made me look just a little bit younger if he was going to heal me? Or thank you, thank you. That is the least he could do for making me suffer for all these years. The participation trophy generation. The world owes me. This is what the word unthankful means. It's the opposite of thankful. The world owes me and I am entitled to what I have. I'm entitled to a big house. I'm entitled to a nice car. I'm entitled to beautiful vacations. I'm entitled to time off whenever I want. Flexible work hours, a big paycheck, me, me time. You know, everybody's entitled to me time. Free college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And many of you know that the Rocky series, by the way, it's my, my favorite series in all the world. I love the Rocky movies in it. And Rocky number three. Right? You have, uh, Rocky and, you know, he's kind of made it and he's, he's enjoying the life and, and, you know, Paulie, the brother-in-law, you know, you know, Paulie, right? And, and Paulie, he's kind of jealous of Rocky and, and, uh, they're walking out to the car and he wants to fight Rocky. You remember that scene? If you don't remember it, check this out. Watch this. You want to hear I owe you? You, I owe nothing. No, you don't owe me nothing. So, what do you want I should do? My sister ain't here? She's home. Oh, you don't mean I used to be tight until you come in. I raise her, she don't come down. She don't know about this. 
Come on, Paul, I want you to screw your head on, right? No, it ain't my head. Your freaking head is the one on wrong. Yeah? Well, what did I do? What'd you do? Nothing. For yourself? Oh, nice. Look, you fixed your face up, handsome. Nice clothes. What'd you do for Paulie? Anything? Three years did you get me a job? This. You gave me a lousy, stinking X-Flex watch. This. Hey, Paulie. What? What? There. That's right. No, leave it now. I never kept a good time anyway. You know, you forget when you were a punk and those guys used to laugh at you because you're so jive. Who used to whack them bums out? They laughed at both of us. No one laughed at me. Tell me, who fixed you up with your first woman? Me, Paulie, I was responsible. She was pregnant. So what? You was no prize either. You know, I always give you. I give you. What do you do? You buy a new house? You move Mick in, right? Did you ask me? Is there something matter with me? Come on, you talk like everybody owes you a living. Shut your mouth. Look, nobody owes nobody nothing. You owe yourself. You're wrong. Friends owe. Friends don't owe. They do because they want to do. Shut your freaking mouth. You've been keeping me down. Down? You know, you're like a crazy brother to me. You really are. So I want to tell you something. This is coming straight from the heart, Paulie. And I mean this. You ain't down. And you ain't a loser. You're just a jealous, lazy bum. Okay. I'm gonna break your mouth. I'm gonna break your mouth! I love the line. Friends don't owe. They do because they want to do. See, society is teaching us now that everybody owes us something. You know, that, that it doesn't take hard work. You know, kids today, they expect to be start off where their parents are right now after 25 years of hard work and, you know, grinding and everything like that. There's this expectation that is harmful to us because we lose some of the values that make people or that God wants to build into people. So where does this attitude of entitlement come from? Well, first of all, it comes from a disconnect from God and a distorted view of God. You know, there's a lot of myths out there about God. One of the myths is something called deism. Deism is the belief that God started the whole thing and then he bailed out. He, he started the universe up like a self-propelled lawnmower. He, he revved it up and it just keeps on going. It's out of control, but someday, someday it's going to run out of gas and, and all will be done. Meanwhile, God is like Rhett Butler. I don't know if you know who he is. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a, you know, he's hands off. You know, he's just, that's deism. God just started the whole thing, but now it's just, it's on its own. And then there's this, this other view. It's called weekendism. It's more of a modern day view where God lives in this big house that we call church and we visit him only on the weekends except when we get busy and it's summertime or it conflicts with the kids' sports schedule. Then we only visit him when we can. Weekendism. And then there's grandpaism, you know, about that one where, where we think God is, you know, as someone who, you know, he's really old, uh, you know, I don't just get around like I used to get around. I don't, I don't see real, real well anymore. Back in the, the Red Sea days, I was pretty hot stuff, but, but now it's hard for me to even get up out of the chair. So, so he's kind of just winking at our sin and, and saying, oh, kids will be kids. Grandpaism. And then there's angryism. People believe this a lot. 
Where God is this ogre, you know, has the whole world on a string, and, and he treats humanity as a toy for his amusement, waiting at every chance that he gets, keeping track of our sins, and then punishing us whenever he gets a chance. Angryism. Can I, can I just speak to angryism for just a moment? God's not angry. Not angry at all. Not angry at the world even for their sin. He's not waiting to get humanity. Matter of fact, he continues to reach out his nail-scarred loving hand to all of humanity, all of humanity, to save us from our sin. Listen to what the scripture says. 2 Corinthians 5.17, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And watch this, not imputing their sins to them. One version says not counting up their sins and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Moreover, the scripture says that when God saw the suffering of Jesus on the cross in the book of Isaiah, it says he sees the travail of his soul, the labor, the anguish, the pain of what Jesus went through, and he will be satisfied or satiated. In other words, his judgment will be satisfied. God's not looking to get the world anymore. Matter of fact, the biggest scripture in all the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But how about verse 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He's not angry. It's always been the plan of God. To save mankind, he loves mankind. We're the apple of his eye, crown jewel of his creation. Deism, weekendism, grandpaism, angryism. How about Hollywoodism? You know, Hollywood has their own version of God, right? If you're from my generation, he looks like George Burns, smokes a cigar. If you're from this generation, he looks like Morgan Freeman, has a really great voice. Hollywoodism, right? Hollywoodism. And then you have the last one I want to talk to you about. And it's the one that I think this this um, participation trophy mindset comes from, this entitlement mindset, geniism. Geniism. God's our genie in the bottle. Where we believe our wish is his command. We rub the lamp when we need God and poof, he does his magic in our lives. Don't need to serve God. Don't need to connect with God. Don't need to obey God. Don't need to go to church or anything like that. But in times of need and want, we say a bottle rubbing prayer and poof, his wish is our Command, Judaism. God exists for us. Now, let me push the pause button and just say this. God loves blessing his kids. I mean, it's, it's just, it's just, he's so thrilled to be able to bless his kids. First Timothy chapter six, verse seven says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Watch this. Who gives us all things to richly enjoy. He loves to bless his kids. He wants us to have nice, he wants us to enjoy those things. James chapter 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He loves to give us good things. Matthew seven eleven. if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give good things to those that ask him, right? Loves to give us good things. Our opening text He who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? It's an undeniable reality of scripture that God loves to bless his kids. But God doesn't owe us. See, there's a big difference, right? God doesn't exist for our pleasure. We exist for his pleasure. Revelation chapter 4 verse 7 
Verse 11 says, O Lord, you are worthy to receive the glory, the honor, and the power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure we are created. We got this thing twisted. We think we God exists for our pleasure. God, you know, do this for me and do this for me and do this for me. And then we catch an attitude with God. If he doesn't do this for me or doesn't do this for me, it doesn't. We, we don't exist so that God can serve us. We exist so that we can serve God. Our life is an offering unto God. To take a page out of Rocky's advice to Paulie. Friends don't do because they owe. Friends do because they want to do. God wants to do. God loves to do. But we owe him. He doesn't owe us. We owe him for everything, for giving us life, for waking us up this morning, for setting us on our way, for keeping us throughout the day. We owe him for the air that we breathe, for the space that we take up on the planet. We owe him for the gifts and the talents that we have. We owe him for everything. He owes us for nothing. But but genieism is the prevalent value or 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 belief of today that that God exists to serve us matter of fact listen to what the scripture says it says what know you not that your body is the temple of the holy ghost which is in you which you have of God and you are not your own i'm my own person and I mean, I understand what you mean by that don't follow other people you know don't be led astray truth of the matter is though you're not your own person you're not your own god god owns you God owns everything about you. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our attitude of gratitude should be one of thankfulness instead of entitlement. Moreover, we must realize that every blessing we have from the least to the greatest blessing comes from God. It is because of him that we have whatever we have, whether it be life, family, job, material, possessions, peace, intellect, you name it, it all is a charis or a grace gift from Almighty God. Back to the ten lepers. And the one that came back and said thank you. He came back and said thank you because he realized Jesus didn't have to. So he was grateful that he did. When we disconnect our blessings from God and hold distorted views of God like genism, we become unthankful or entitled, and that is a sad truth or the sad truth of the culture of our day. So what does this unthankful, entitled attitude do to us? Number one, it blinds us from how blessed we really are. Ever feel like you're not blessed? It's a lie. Almost everybody in here, I would say everybody in here, is extraordinarily blessed. For example, America's lowest income earners are richer than most of the rest of the world. In fact, the typical person in the bottom 5% of American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the rest of the world's inhabitants. But we are blinded to how blessed we are. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 18, it talks about how we should look at our blessings. It says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Not for everything, because God doesn't create everything. God's not responsible for everything, right? It, most people don't even know that. Like, you know, all the bad and all the evil and all of that kind of stuff, it's not God's doing. I was talking to an atheist one time, and they said they didn't believe in God because of all the evil in the world. I said, okay, good, I don't believe in him either. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I just have a question. You know, where's the evil come from? And he couldn't say God because he didn't believe in God. Don't mess with me. And he said, well, you know, man, 
and four choices. And I said, exactly. I said, now that we straightened out where evil comes, can we bring God back into the picture? Because he's the only source of good. You see, we need to understand God's not responsible for everything. Right? But in everything, in every circumstances, we ought to give thanks. And, and that, that sense of gratefulness has a profound effect over our life, over the way that we view things, over the way that we're able to get through things, over our general disposition, over our happiness. I, I, I know I've said this a lot, but I don't understand Christians who aren't happy. I, I don't get it. Like Jesus on the inside, yo, working on the outside, right? I mean, maybe, maybe he need to work more on your outside. Somebody, some of you need to notify your face that you've been saved. You know what I'm saying? Some of you just walk around looking angry all the time. Come on, somebody. Jesus is on the inside. That light ought to be emanating. Why you, people get hating on Joel Osteen because he smiles so much. Well, what should we be doing as Christians? We ought to be smiling. We ought to be happy. Why? We got Jesus. We got the greater one living on the inside of us. In everything, it affects your attitude. But this, this, the sense of entitlement also blinds us to God's standards. Remember our opening text. It says there will come a time when men will be unthankful and it links it with unholy. Well, this, this, there's, there's an ungodly connection between being unthankful or entitled and unholy. When we disconnect our blessings from God or distance ourselves from God, it leads to unholy living. What is unholy living? Well, it means to lose one's fear of God. It doesn't mean that we should be afraid of God, by the way. There's a difference, right? Um, because God says, in, in time of need, come boldly to the throne of grace. They might find mercy and grace to help in time of need, right? And so God's basically saying, even when you're all jacked up, messed up, whatever's going on in your life, you can still have confidence to come to me. I'm a good father. I'm going to receive you. I'm going to accept you. All of that kind of stuff, right? So, what, so when, when the, when I talk about unholiness being a loss of a fear of God, I'm not talking about a, 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 a unscriptural afraid of God. But the word fear or the phrase fear of God is a reverence for God. It's a reverence for Him. And what unholy living is, it's a loss of a reverence for God. And, and, and this loss of a reverence for God happens when we separate our blessings, all the good things we have from God. We don't realize that all these things that are going on in our life that are good and healthy and whole, that we, that in truth and the matter without Christ we don't deserve, are from God. And when we separate and disconnect from God, the consequences of, is we lose our reverence for God and, and the result is ill-mannered, impure, unclean, lewd, indecent, rude, and crude behavior, which the Bible calls unholy or unsacred. And society is filled with that. Listen to Romans chapter 1. It says, because that, when they knew God, or they had a general fear of God, literally what that means, they glorified him not as God, they distanced themselves from God, neither were thankful, they didn't realize that every good thing that they had came from him, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart became darkened. Now notice this phrase, vain in their imaginations. Literally what it means is, is, and forgive me for saying it this way, but this is the exact definition from the original language. Moronic in their thinking. They became moronic in their thinking. Literally what it means. Well, what kind of moronic? Have you heard the latest craze? There's always something, right? The latest craze now is furries. Some of y'all don't even know what a furry is. Furry is somebody who believes they're an animal. And because of the way that society is, 
where society says you are really no longer what you are, but rather what you are is what you think you are, then I guess it's okay for somebody who thinks they're an animal to be an animal. So if you're a horse, you think you're a horse, you're a horse. So what does that mean? Moronic in their thinking. Do you see what is happening to society? Because we have disconnected from God. We are now getting to the place where stuff that is actually crazy, something that is actually was considered mental illness at one time, is now considered to be okay. There was a teacher just recently that walked into an elementary school because they were a man, but they felt they were a woman, and they put on prosthetic breasts. But not just small ones, and forgive me, I'm not trying to be rude, huge ones, like out to here. And wore a tight t-shirt and went into the elementary classroom and taught the elementary kids who are used to seeing this teacher as a man with prosthetic breasts. And nobody said anything about it, because nowadays you can't call that out, you can't say that's wrong, but hello, I have to. Years ago we said this person's out of their mind. Nowadays we say, no, it's just, well, you know, it's who they are. No, it leads to when you disconnect from God, when you disconnect your blessings from God, what happens is it leads to being vain in your imaginations. And watch this, the next thing it says, it says, and their foolish heart became darkened. Literally means that everything on the inside, the core of their character becomes evil. Just because of the behaviors that are going on. And so we have this crazy culture who is, is gotten to a point where we don't recognize who people really are. And I want to set the record straight. Can I just tell you, every single person on the earth is a creation of Almighty God made in His image and in His likeness. They are one-of-a-kind originals. They are the apple of God's eye, the crown jewel of His creation. They are God's prized possession. They're not an animal. They're not an it, a them, a zai, a zim, or any other pronoun. If you are created as a male, you are a male created in the image and likeness of God, and you are wonderful and beautiful and all that in a bag of chips. And if you are a female created in the image and likeness of God, that's where your value comes from. And it's time that we get truth back into culture instead of letting culture poison our head. It's happening now because of a distorted view of God that leads to this. To what extent? Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 32. It said, who knowing the judgment of God. In other words, even though God's judgment has been satisfied right now, there's coming a day where we will all stand before God in judgment of the way that we lived our lives. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. And by the way, don't hate on people because before we were in Christ, we were also worthy of death. Right? So this is not a look down at people issue. Not only do the same, watch this, but have pleasure in them that do it. In other words, they have distanced themselves so much from God and they have a distorted view of God through an entitlement mentality that they now have pleasure and openly do what is immoral in the face of God. Present day society. Everything is just right out in the open anymore now. We got parades. We got TV shows. We got music. We got everything that is just celebrating all of this stuff that is immoral and unholy in lifestyle. It's as if what because we've distanced ourselves so much from God, we now thumb our noses in the face of God. To say, hey, what are you going to do about it, God? And entitlement, as the text put it, 
puts it on unthankfulness blinds us to God's standards, even to the point where in society we now have churches who claim to be Bible-based concocting and distorting doctrine to support immoral behavior that God clearly says is wrong in an effort of accepting everybody. And I'm even talking about get ready for big denominations to start changing biblical principle in order to accept people. Newsflash for everybody. Jesus already accepts everybody. See, y'all didn't get that. He's called the friend of sinners. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the wine bibbers. He hung out with the tax collectors. He loved them, right? But to everyone who believed who he said he was, to them he gave the power to become the sons and the daughters of God. He put the Holy Ghost on the inside of them so they could live a God-honoring life. We don't need to change the gospel. We need to teach the gospel and teach people that in Christ they have the power to live for God. That's the gospel message. And so because we have distanced ourselves from God and rejected God's principles, we are now blinded to his standards. The sense of entitlement also blinds us to God's existence. Ultimately, when you choose to live an unholy lifestyle, you only have two choices. Reimagine God or reject God. Reimagine God or reject God. Because there's no way that, see, we're not built to live in incongruency. We not we are not built to live one way and believe another way. And so eventually, either our living lines up with our believing, or our believing lines up with our living. And so what happens when, you, when people give themselves over to, and I'm not talking about perfection, nobody in here is perfect. I'm not talking about messing up. I'm not talking about sin. But when people give themselves over to an unholy lifestyle, what happens is they only have one choice, and that's reimagine God so that they, they have a congruency, so that he fits into with their belief system. Otherwise, they'll lose their mind. Or to reject God. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, watch this, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man. What did they do? They reimagined God. A God that fits into their mold. Now, if you were here for the first message in the series, I taught about abortion. And, and go listen to it because it wasn't attacking anybody or anything of that nature, but it just, we talked about the issue and the complications of the issue and all of that kind of stuff. But it was funny because I was listening to one particular talk show host on television, and here's what they said. I won't name them. They said, well, you know, I know enough. I'm a backslidden Baptist, but I was raised as a Baptist as a boy. And I know enough about the Bible to know that Jesus never said anything about abortion. And so it can't be wrong. Reimagining God. Fitting God into our belief system. It's the only choice you have. Either that or second choice when you want to live in a holy lifestyle is to reject God completely. But the Bible says about this, listen to it. Psalm 14 verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. 
Do we realize how, how scientifically, I know we, everybody likes to say follow the science, but the fact of the matter is you know this, nobody follows science. Right? Do we realize how scientifically foolish it is to say there is no God? Makes no sense. Right? Science is things that you can observe. Right? Scientific theory. You're trying to prove your hypothesis by observation. Show me one thing that ever came from something that doesn't look just like it. Show me one thing. Flowers come from other flowers. They produce seeds. Right? Fish come from fish. Guess what humans come from? Other humans. But ultimately, from someone that they look like. We were made in the image and like I can go on and on about all the scientific evidence that actually supports the existence of God. But what happens is the fool. Why? Because they have to marry their their lifestyle with their belief system. And so either they're going to reimagine God or to reject God. And, and to a lesser extent, Christians do this. When Christians don't want to obey, am I preaching all right this morning? Am I too hard on you? I'm not trying to be hard on nobody. Christians do this. When Christians don't want to obey a principle in the word of God, they try to make it that that's not really what the Bible says. I won't call them out now, you know, because I'll be getting in your business if I call them all out. Right, well, that, that's Old Testament. We don't really need to do that today. Well, you know, yeah, I know. I'm like, but that's just the way God made me. And on and on we go. And what are we doing? We're trying to cover up this entitlement mentality. It, it blinds us to the existence of God. So, so what are the keys to prevailing in this participation trophy generation? How do we prevail? Number one, very simple, just live thankful. Connect your blessings to God. You remember that song? Count your very blessings. Name them one by one. Count your very blessings. See what God has done. You know what? During the day, just just start looking around. Say, God, thank you for that. And God, thank you for this. And God, thank you for that. I've told you the story about I was down one day. I mean, I left everything for God, went into the ministry, was broke. I was feeling some kind of way about it. I'm like, God, come on, you know, left everything. I'm broke now, can't even put food on the table. I have to break open the piggy bank to buy formula and diapers for the kids. God, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. You know, God was my genie in the body, bottle, and he wasn't coming through. So I was catching an attitude with him. And God told me, he said, get up, walk me around the house. And I looked at everything that I had. I looked at spoons, forks, knives, cups, the refrigerator, the freezer, the floors, the couch, the everything. I said, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I was putting out, put, picking out underwear. Going, God, thank you for my underwear. Why? Because you got to count your very blessings. See what God has done. Live thankful. Live thankful instead of unthankful. Number two, live with eternity in mind. A person's actions are deeply affected by what they believe. If we believe we'll give an account to God for our lives, which we all will, it will affect the way that we live. By the way, even believers will give an account for the way that you lived your life, right? There's the great white throne judgment, which is based upon whether you believe in Jesus or not. But then there's the Bama seat of judgment. There's the reward seat of judgment. That's how you lived your life as a believer. And heaven will get rewards or lack thereof for that we'll give an account for our life. Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27. It says, everyone must die and after that be judged by God. Nobody ever thinks that applies to them. Everybody but me must die. You know? Everybody that eats right and takes their vit doesn't eat right and take their vitamins must die. But everyone must die. And then be judged by God. And what God is basically telling us is not to live morbidly, 
Don't live like thinking, oh, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Enjoy life. Jesus came to give us abundant life, right? A full, that's just not eternal life, but that's a full and blessed and prosperous life here on the earth. Enjoy it, but at the same time, live circumspectly understanding that just because a win here is not what's ultimate. Sometimes a loss here is a win there. And what matters is winning there because that's what lasts forever, not what win, not the wins here. So live with eternity in mind. And then lastly, love people. Love people enough to stand for truth and to tell them about Jesus. I want to close with bringing your remembrance to the story of the woman at the well. You remember the story. Jesus met her there. She was hurting. She'd been married five times, and the man that she was living with was not her husband. She came in the middle of the day because to fetch some water because she knew no one would be there, and she was full of shame for the life that she was living in. At first, she treated Jesus with hostility. Listen, sometimes you have to break through exterior shells in order to get to the heart of a person. And people are usually roughest on the outside usually have the most issues. It's not necessarily who they are, but they're they're struggling. Sometimes we have to break through exterior shells in order to get to the heart of the issue. And so first she she treats Jesus with hostility. She was like Carla on Cheers. You remember Carla on Cheers? She was the rough waitress, you know. And uh, she treated him with hostility because she was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew and they didn't like each other. But Jesus loved her anyway. Jesus said, "Can can I get a cup of water? Who are you to put your lips on my cup? You're, you're a Jew. I'm a, I'm a, Jesus is like, I'm loving you despite our differences. And so she's treating Jesus with hostility. And so Jesus, just to get our attention, he says, he says, uh, where's your husband at? And, and she says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, I, I, I know. You've been married five times. Man, you're living with right now, not even your husband. So she had six men in her life. Jesus was the what man? the seventh man the man of perfection the man who can change everything that you've been through and she said oh I I perceive that you're a prophet and then they started Jesus changed the conversation started talking about the Messiah and she said oh yeah when Messiah come he gonna set everything straight and Jesus said the one you're talking to I'm him she dropped her water pot her water pot is symbolic of her old life She dropped that water pot. She ran back to her hometown. She said, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. And the whole city came to Jesus because of one changed life. What did Jesus do? He stood for truth. He wasn't like, yeah, you know, it's cool. You know, I know, I know, you know, married five times, you're living with somebody. That's cool because it's today's culture. Jesus is like, that, that's a sign that something's going on that that you need me. But he said, but in order for you to change, I can't just beat you over the head. I can't just dictate to you. But here's the key to change. Me. And he told them who he was. And so in our society, our, our participation trophy generation, God is not calling us to get up on our high horse or soapbox and spew venom toward people who God loves. But he is talking, teaching us to be lights, to stand for truth in a dark world, but also to tell people about Jesus because that's the only way that people can change. I don't know about you, but I can't change without Jesus. I need Jesus. 
I need him every moment. I need him every hour. My flesh likes to always go. I'm, how many of you like me constantly pulling your flesh back? You're like, ah, bro, you can't go over there. Nah, that ain't right. Put them cookies down. Put them ice cream down. You know, I don't know, but I'm, I'm constantly pulling my flesh back. See, God's not looking for perfection, but he isn't looking for us to also just give in war. Grace and truth, truth in Jesus, that makes all the difference. Would you stand on your feet? Maybe you're here today and, and you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. You're not here today just because somebody invited you, although that was the catalyst. You're here today because Jesus wanted you here. God wanted you here because the passion of God's heart is to not see anyone perish, but to all come to eternal life through Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you're apart from God, you don't know if you were to die this moment or the second where you'd spend eternity today. I want to give you the opportunity to get right with God. You say, what do I have to do? You don't have to do penance. You don't have to go out and, you know, uh, make sure your good behavior outweighs your bad behavior. None of that's going to get you saved. What you do have to do is surrender your life to Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, without you, I'm a sinner. Without you, I deserve to spend eternity apart from you in a place never created for me, and that's called hell. Hell was never created for human beings. The only people that ever wind up in hell is people who choose to go to hell. How do you choose to go to hell? By rejecting Jesus. But when you give your life to Jesus, when you choose him as your Lord and Savior, he washes you of your sin. It's not hell to your account anymore. He gives you the power to change, to live a godly life. You're on your way to heaven when you leave this earth. With no one looking around, if you're here today, say, Pastor, you know what? Today I need to connect to Jesus. I need to give my life to him. Right where you are, we won't embarrass you in any way. Just hold your hand up. Say, Pastor, that's me. Would you pray for me? I want to give my life to Jesus. Hold it up nice and high. I promise I won't embarrass you in any way. Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. Hallelujah. Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. Don't make us look for you too hard. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. If you're watching online and you want to give your life to Jesus or you're one of our locations, you feel like, you know what? I need to repent of my sins and get right with Jesus. This is for you too. Right where you are, wherever you are, whether you're in this space or whether you're online or at one of our locations, out of your mouth and everybody's saying this at the same time, say it out loud with me. Heavenly Father, I give you my life. I repent of my sins. I make Jesus my Lord and Savior, and I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. If you raise that hand, an usher will find you. They will give you a little book that describes what it means to give your life to Jesus. If you flag them down to help you, that'll be beneficial. If you're here for the first time, that book, by the way, describes what it means to give your life to Jesus. If you're here for the first time, please come say hello to us. And uh, we want to be a blessing to you. We want to get to know you. God bless you. We'll see you again next week.